0: Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard.
1: And I'm Clark Corbin. And as you listen today, try to imagine that Kevin and I are not sitting right next to each other in his office wearing nearly identical spring-themed uh, dress shirts, because that would never it, it, happen. It's, it's
0: orangey plaid day, apparently, but it's but there's more important stuff Uh Spring has officially come. Baseball season began yesterday. My Oakland Athletics are 1-0 and en route to a 162-0 and season. But most importantly, not to bury the lead here, no, really, the legislature has adjourned. They uh, called it a session late Wednesday afternoon. A little bit of drama towards the end, but the legislative session is now in the books.
1: Kevin, it was. we told everybody that it was winding down, and it did indeed it wind down, but not without a few... Uh, a few last-minute moments of of drama. Uh, We both split time over at the legislature on Wednesday. Kind of walk me through the last couple days of the session and how things ended up wrapping up.
0: Yeah, well, what we saw happen the final couple days was what we thought might happen to some extent, but it it was still a strange process because of the way this session was structured and because of the mechanics of adjourning and waiting for bills to go to the governor's desk before the legislature could adjourn, and then the legislature deciding to stick around until the governor acted on all the pieces of legislation. You had this kind of swirl, this sort of waiting to see what happened from the governor's office and how the legislature would respond. And it did affect education this week. We saw the governor veto two education-related bills. On Monday, he vetoed a bill that would 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 take the Idaho reading indicator off of the list of metrics that are used to define student growth and ultimately the list of metrics that can be used to determine whether a teacher is eligible for a pay raise. The governor vetoed that bill on Monday. The House voted to uphold his veto, uh, not even terribly close vote, but it had come close to the two-thirds that they needed to override the governor's veto. And then on Wednesday, the final day of the session, the governor vetoed a bill that would relax uh, hiring requirements for charter school administrators. That veto stood without a vote. The uh, the House didn't even attempt an override. So really, you know, legislators decided to stick around until the end of the session on the, you know, on the off chance that the governor was going to veto something that uh, that they were going to try to override as a legislature. In the end, the governor vetoed only two pieces of legislation. The House didn't Uh, override either of those vetoes and and neither of the issues ever came back to the Senate. So it was fairly anticlimactic in the sense of any kind of showdown between the gentleman on the second floor (laughs) and the legislators on the third floor of the state house. It just
1: didn't happen um, to to the extent that uh, we thought it might. Yeah, and and just as a plug, if you want to go back to last week's article, you wrote a great piece a week ago Thursday talking about the winners and the losers from the session and what passed and and it really and didn't change didn't. this week. Right? You know, really, nothing of of great magnitude occurred. I mean,
0: I, I know that uh, folks in the charter school community are pretty upset that this uh, administrators bill got vetoed. Uh, already, talk is about trying to come back with a similar piece of legislation in two thousand and nineteen. So. Uh, but in terms of some of the big issues that we talked about uh, in our wrap-up piece last week, uh, not really uh, much, uh, much changed in these uh, final few days.
1: And that charter bill was a divisive bill, even as it was going through the hearing process. Obviously, it passed the legislature on the way to being vetoed, but it, had, it encountered some resistance along the way. You know, the supporters said that this was about giving charter schools flexibility and making hires that would be appropriate for them. But opponents said, you know, hey, we really think this creates two different sets of standards for our school administrators between the more traditional public schools and the charter schools, which are still public schools in the state of Idaho. And they worried that that new charter bill would water down those requirements. So it did encounter some resistance and uh, um, some division along the way. And I think that might have had some
0: reason uh, that may explain why this uh, override never came to a vote. Overrides are interesting. We don't see them happen very often. And what we saw this week on the reading bill uh, was a really interesting vote. I mean, this is a bill that passed the House 66 to 1, clearly (laughs) well more than a two-thirds majority uh, approved it the first time around. When it came down to an override vote, only 29 legislators voted to override the governor's veto. And there's you know, there you know, a lot goes on there, a lot factors into that, um, that decision that lawmakers have to make. The charter bill was a lot more controversial. It did pass both houses, uh, passed the House on a party line vote, uh, passed the Senate with about two-thirds majority but uh, some republican opposition as well. So I think an override on that bill would have been a tough sell anyway, especially when you factor in that uh, sometimes lawmakers maybe are reluctant to to cast an override vote to uh to you know to you know, go against the governor's veto in, in that public a fashion.
1: Sure, with the end of the session, um you had a chance to attend what probably is going to be Governor Otter's final major press conference as governor. Obviously, his term runs through uh, the end of the year, but the session is, is a, a big part uh, of the political year here in Idaho. Give me a, you were there uh, on Thursday. Give me a sense of the governor's last presser. It was a long one. Yeah, it was a long one. He, he and Republican leaders uh, kind of held
0: court for a little bit over an hour, uh, covered a lot of ground, not just education. I mean, the governor talked about, you know, it was really you know interesting, not, not education-related, but he talked about how, as a governor, he wasn't prepared for the uh, the process of having to uh, execute a, uh, a person on death row, and that that's a really complicated and really, a really gut-wrenching decision that a governor has to, to make. He talked reflectively about that, about trying to prepare the next governor for that. He talked about, Uh, A lot of issues. Healthcare, obviously, was a a big uh, talking point in the uh, post-session press conference. When it came down to talking about what happened this past legislative session, uh, he started by talking about uh, where he felt the legislature made gains on education. He started with several education items from uh, teacher pay raises to uh, money for classroom technology to money for college scholarships, to supporting the new community college in Idaho Falls, to actually funding the statewide reading test. So he, he rattled off a laundry list of areas in education where he felt that the legislature uh, gained some ground. He did talk about uh, the higher ed CEO proposal that didn't get through the legislature, that didn't really uh, get uh, you know, a serious hearing or vote in the legislature, and said that he was persuaded by legislators who said that... Um, you know, maybe it's time to just study the issue before we create the position. So he was fairly uh, philosophical about that. Um, the tone that we got from the Republican leadership, not just Otter, but legislative leadership and Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, was that this was a session that cut a a balance between investing in education and providing tax cuts and putting money into state savings accounts. Not surprisingly, a very different tone when Democratic legislative leaders held their... yeah. <laughs> It was sort of post-session press conference. They held it uh, Wednesday afternoon, hours before adjournment. Um, the concern that we heard from House Minority Leader Matt Erpelding was, well, we, we've made pretty deep tax cuts. If the economy uh, takes a turn for the worse, if money is tight, these tax cuts may make it difficult to invest in year five of the career ladder. It may make it difficult to continue investments in education. So a very different post-session take. Uh, As you might expect, and and now we'll wait and see uh, how things play out in the next few months, not just uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of tax collections, in terms of education policy, but obviously in terms of the election.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, even though the session has wrapped up, our work is not done. Uh, We're going to have a lot of coverage ramping up heading into the May primary election. Uh, You can look for coverage from the gubernatorial race, the state superintendents race, the congressional race, and a few key legislative races to keep your eye on. Uh, But also, uh, we're going to follow the school funding formula interim committee Mm -hmm. as it gets back to work for its third year. We do expect, or at least the members of that committee are expecting to bring back Maybe some more concrete recommendations possibly for the legislature to act on in 2019. So look forward to that. This will be the
0: third and supposedly divisive, the decisive third year for this uh, school funding formula committee. We saw them meet briefly on Tuesday, uh, hired a consultant to work with them over the next uh, few months on drafting a new funding formula, holding hearings across the state. So this will be the year really to closely watch that funding formula committee so, our work is cut out for us. Uh, the race you'll be covering most closely, Clark, though, is the uh, state superintendent's race. And you had a piece earlier this week looking at uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra's gear at the legislature, some, some rather uh, critical remarks from some, some key legislators as far as her performance this legislative session.
1: Yeah, this piece really kind of functions as a bridge between the legislative session and this primary election season, which is just going to be a sprint uh, from here on until mid-May, until the primary election day. But uh, I interviewed several House Republicans that are heavily involved on education issues, and the consensus that I got in talking uh, with these lawmakers was that They've met rarely with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra, during this legislative session. And the House Education Committee Chairwoman, uh, Julie Van Orden, went so far as to say that she thinks the superintendent needs to be at the state capitol building more, that she needs to engage with lawmakers more, that she needs to work on vetting her legislation and working together with legislators, and that that would be a good way for the superintendent to get some of her legislation through. Uh, Representative Van Orden really suggested that the lack of engagement with some of these lawmakers has hurt Ybarra's ability to be effective. And we kind of went through um, the session as a whole. We talked with uh, Representative Bell, the co-chair of JFAC. We talked with Representative Van Orden from House Ed. We talked with Representative Wendy Horman, uh, who's taken a lead role in sponsoring and carrying the public school budgets as well as Superintendent Ybarra's budget. And I talked with Democrat John McCrosty. He's the only currently serving teacher, uh, currently working teacher who's serving in the legislature. He's a Democrat member of the House Education Committee. All of those people told me that they met with the superintendent uh, just once during the legislative session, with the exception of McCrosty, who said he never met with her. And um, and we also kind of started taking a look at what's publicly known about Ybarra's schedule. This is something that we've been requesting uh, for the past two years just to try and get an accounting of who the superintendent's meeting with, the official business that she's conducting, the meetings that she attends and different things like that. And that's something that we've sort of struggled uh, to get that kind of information out of her communications and media staff. And so uh, people feel strongly about this piece. Um, We've gotten some reaction online. We've gotten some reaction from legislators after the piece was published. Senator Sean Keough, a Republican from Sandpoint, who is the other JFAC co-chair, wrote in a a letter to me saying that she's met with Ibarra several times this session and always found her uh, to be accessible. But it's kind of started a conversation and and people feel strongly uh, about this article, kind of, and and we're seeing where some loyalties break down, aren't we, Kevin?
0: And I think that's important. And and you updated the story to reflect uh, Senator Keough's remarks. But I'm curious, what... Ibarra herself had to say about uh, the comments made by uh, some legislators from her own party.
1: Sure. Uh, I talked to Ibarra in person, or I talked to Ibarra over the phone last week on Thursday, and then as I did more reporting on this article, uh, the State Department of Education kind of got a preview of what I was going to say, and I reached out to them. For some reaction, Uh, the main thing that Superintendent Ibarra said was that if the worst that legislators can say about her is that they want to spend more time with her and that they want to work more closely with her, that that's a good thing. That's really how the superintendent uh, positioned that, that it's not the worst thing in the world if they want to work together more and want more of her. Superintendent also said that she works hard, Um, said she puts in a lot of hours and that this is not necessarily – a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 kind of job. She said she works evenings, she works weekends, and that she's happy to do that as, um, as state superintendent. But I also tried to ask the superintendent a little bit about her strategy of engaging with lawmakers. I asked her a couple of times uh, which lawmakers she worked with the closest and had the best working relationship with, and she wouldn't name names; she only spoke in general terms about the importance of having multiple converse- the importance of having multiple conversations and making sure that lawmakers are aware of her vision and We've also kind of talked about how we talked about in the story about how. Uh, Ybarra doesn't attend a lot of the education meetings. She has certainly been there for some of the big education committee meetings, uh, science standards, rural school center, uh, teacher of the year presentation in particular, um, but we talked about how Duncan Robb, uh, Ybarra's chief policy officer, is really the one uh, who's been uh, given the... Uh, go ahead to do a lot of the heavy lifting with presenting bills in committee, uh, working on engagement with lawmakers and explaining the superintendent's position that's really fallen to Duncan Rob, And this is the second legislative session now uh, that Duncan has been working right. with the superintendent in that capacity. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, people feel strongly about it, but it sort of functions as a bridge between the legislative session looking back, uh, but also teeing up our
0: primary coverage, in a way. Right. And, and a reminder, you have contested primaries in the state superintendent's race, both on the Republican and Democratic side. Those will be decided in May, on May 15th. And we have a, a forum coming up that we're, we're sponsoring with candidates for a state superintendent. That's coming up on April 10th. We'll have more details about that on our website. The election season is really kicking off, and and I think the story kind of sets the stage for some of what we will be looking at even more closely as the election unfolds. Yeah, for sure it is. Other other news, though, from the state superintendent's office this week. uh, On Thursday, uh, the State Department of Education got word from the federal government about a long-awaited decision on the state's ESA plan.
1: Yeah, just when I thought the week was coming to a Mm -hmm. close and maybe we had all the news behind us, we got word late Thursday afternoon that Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos personally and fully approved Idaho's plan to comply with the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. That's a federal education law signed by former President Obama in late 2015. Uh, We've written about that law before at Idaho Ed News, and we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. That law is noteworthy. It replaced the controversial No Child Left Behind Act. And one thing that's notable about ESA, and it's a very complicated, long law, but one thing that's notable about it is in a very general sense, it pushes control and oversight of public schools away from the federal government, and it gives more control to the states and the individual school districts themselves. Now, after that law, after that bill was signed into law, the states had to develop their own plan to... Comply with ESA, and this is a big deal because this plan it basically represents Idaho's application to receive about eighty-five to eighty-seven million dollars in federal funding every year. But the plan also includes a new accountability system for public schools, essentially the first uh, official accountability system for schools since Superintendent Ibarra took office and uh, she's in, about to finish up her first four-year term here, and this will be the first accountability system that we've had. But the plan beyond that, it also outlines how Idaho will implement nine federal programs, and it also includes long-range goals for education in the state of Idaho. So this is a long-ranging, important document. Um, Superintendent Ibarra and State Board of Education President Linda Clark originally submitted this plan to the feds, Back in September of 2017, just before the end of the year in late December, uh, the feds reached out to Idaho, uh, had some questions, requested some tweaks, wanted to ensure that the plan did in fact comply with federal law, and then we just got news Thursday uh, that the plan had been fully approved, and uh, that's big news for the state of Idaho, and the um, we're actually going to use this plan to identify both the highest performing and lowest performing mm-hmm. schools this summer, and so that criteria, uh, the school year's almost come to an end. Uh, but the criteria in that plan will be used to identify um, sort of the best and the best type of schools that can be held up as bright spots and examples, but also identify the lowest performing schools. Not necessarily for punitive purposes, but to push resources towards those low-performing schools and to surround them with support as those schools develop turnaround plans. So it's a big deal. It's a big story. It could well have been the top story of the week if it wasn't for the legislature adjourning. Uh, And so I'd encourage you to uh, head back to the homepage and look for Thursday. Uh, March 29th for the coverage of the ESA plan being fully approved.
0: Right. And it's going to be an ongoing story. I mean, you you covered the ESA compliance phase very closely last summer, the the process of writing up this plan. Now, the ESA implementation phase begins really right away. And and, you you talked about this summer, the identification of high-performing, low-performing, high-performing, low-performing schools. So This is still a big story and still a a process we'll be watching very closely.
1: We will. We will write about those schools that are identified. Uh, We will write about the progress towards the long-term education goals. A big increase in the state's high school graduation rate is one of the goals attached to the ESA plan. We will monitor uh, that progress and uh, let people know uh, how we're doing as we move from development of the ESA plan, to now we're at approval, uh, to moving very quickly towards implementation. We will continue to follow that story.
0: Okay. Well, I think that catches us up in a busy final week of the legislative session. Uh, Looking ahead to next week, we'll have uh, a lot of coverage next week, and we want to definitely uh, call to your attention, if you haven't already seen the story on our site, Andrew Reid. Our multimedia reporter is uh, in Florida, even as we speak, and he will be... At Cape, Cape Canaveral. Say that uh, one time fast in my case. He will be at Cape, Cape Canaveral on Monday for the um, SpaceX rocket launch. So you will want to join us on our Facebook page at 2.30 Mountain Time on Monday for uh, Facebook live coverage of that event. It's really exciting. He's been uh, very stoked about getting down to Cape Canaveral for the, uh, for the launch. He'll have full coverage. It's going to be very cool.
1: Yeah, Andrew was selected uh, by NASA uh, among dozens and dozens of journalists who applied to be a part of this. He's going to have a chance to tour the Kennedy Space Center uh, to interview some of the NASA engineers and then head over to Cape Canaveral for the launch on Monday afternoon. We've had an opportunity to partner up a little bit with Idaho's STEM Action Center and partner up with a few classrooms from throughout the state. Uh, I think some students are going to be able to ask Andrew some questions that he can pass on to some NASA folks, and I know there will be several classrooms and even a couple of schools throughout the state uh, that have blocked out time on Monday afternoon that will be watching the launch and following Andrew's adventure with us. Uh, through our Facebook page. And so if you want to be a part of that on Monday, uh, or if you have children at home, or, or if you're a school teacher and you're interested in this, if you want to head over to Facebook and find Idaho Education News and give us a like, and then go back uh, to that Facebook page, the Idaho Education Facebook page, on Monday afternoon. Uh, it'll be real easy to find our live uh, broadcast and some of the features that Andrew will be doing uh, from Florida. But just a very cool project. It really fits in line uh, with some of the initiatives that the state is going through uh, with STEM, which STEM, of course, is the acronym uh, that's all about science, technology, engineering, and math areas of education. And so congratulations to Andrew. Uh, I hope for smooth weather uh, and uh, that everything runs on time on monday but it's a, a very cool thing and, and it really gives andrew a chance to be on the national stage uh, working with the stem project and sharing this uh, with educators and students back home in idaho right no, kevin very exciting stuff so do check that out on monday
0: and check us out all week at idaho at news.org we'll have uh, the latest news on education and politics as we move out of legislature into campaign mode lots to cover lots to write about we'll be on top of it And uh, we'll be back here next Friday to recap it all with another edition of the Extra Credit Podcast.
1: Next Friday's podcast will be a really good one. We're going to give a preview of that candidate forum that we're going to be hosting uh, in partnership with Boise State University uh, coming up very soon uh, in April. Next week on the podcast, we will have a preview of that campaign forum, let you know how you can get some of your questions to the candidates and how you can watch that forum, whether you'd like to attend in person or watch it digitally so be sure to check back next week we always have a lot of fun on the extra credit podcast i'm clark i'm kevin have a good week